But first, please put your hands together for Jackie Kay and Catherine Norbury. It's, um, it's really wonderful to, to be here with Catherine and her wonderful book, The, the Fish Ladder, which if you haven't uh, read yet, then I would urge you to read. It's a most extraordinary book. It takes you with it on its various different journeys, many, many journeys, really to find at each point a core, a centre and a core, and at each point along the journey to deal with, with that miraculous thing that makes really makes life happen, that awareness of big and deep absences, voids that we have, as well as echoing presences. So uh, it really um, fascinates me as one uh, adopted person to another to, to start having this, this conversation with, with Catherine. And um, we'll, we'll involve you in a bit towards the end, so you might be thinking of different questions that, that you uh, want to ask. But just to kick things off a little bit and get you settled mm -hmm. in, the, in the chair and uh, welcome. It's fascinating because years ago I came to New EA, didn't I? I did indeed, yes. And there yeah. you were um, writing away. Yeah, what they do is they, they throw a, a brilliant writer to the MA students at UEA. Can you hear me? Yeah. This, I don't think this mic's on. Can you hear me now? No. No. Who's got all mics? <laughs> Can we turn this on? Hello? Are we on? Is this... Should we switch? No, we can't switch. How's that? Is that better? Okay. Well, when I was an MA student at UEA, uh, they, they have this rolling festival and they, they bring brilliant writers down to talk to us. And Jackie, very bravely, came down and was thrown to the uh, MA students at UEA. And uh, that was where we first met, was it not? That's right, and so it's, it, there's something really wonderful about meeting people years before as, as students and then to, to be here now with this book. Yeah, I had no book then. I was saying, I'm writing a memoir. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of your memoir and, uh, and that idea of the adoption memoir, actually, as a, as a genre, which um, is beginning to emerge, I think, with uh, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, uh, Jeanette Winterson's book, and uh, yours and... They're, they're sort of spe a few of them are speckling mm. into existence. Mm. Yes, absolutely. And is there's something I mean, you, you say here genealogy allows us to construct our identities from our own myths and legends to know who we are and where we've come from. Or we can use the stories as a starting point for where we might like to go, a legacy to be built on or rebelled against. Sarah Maitland describes the tradition of storytelling as a very fundamental human attribute to the extent that psychiatry now often treats narrative loss, the inability to construct a story of one's own life as a loss of identity or personhood. There was no genetic starting point from which I could begin my narrative. I didn't even know my nationality. Um, that to me is, is, is a fascinating subject because it makes us think that, um, that partly when you're adopted, part of the business is trying to invent yourself. Yes. Uh, that, um, the nationality, it's interesting that you mention nationality because, of course, you are the Maka. And, uh, and yet, nationalism is something that I still find problematical. Uh, and I think partly I find it problematical because I've never really 
had to identify with a nationality because I don't actually know what it is. I mean, I'm, I'm clearly Caucasian and North European origin, probably. Uh, and that's about as accurate as it can be. Um, and so I think as an adoptee, you do float uh, and you have to make it up. And my family was sort of of Welsh-Scottish um, descent. My cousins are all very dark. Everyone's got black hair and brown eyes. And so, you know, I always looked different. And it took me a long time to realise. And I noticed that other people looked like each other. But whenever a family album would come out, whenever some, a new baby would be born, you always have that, oh, and you know, it's got Auntie Sissy's nose or... Uh, she, she looks just like your dad. And someone would always turn to me and say, but they're not going to look like you, are they? Uh, because you're special. And that word, you know, special, you think, God, uh, how long am I going to have to be special for? Uh, because you just want to fit in, really. Or I wanted to, you just want to be normal. Um, and it's, it's not something one has an option of as an adopted child, I think. Someone knows the story, even if, if you don't, you know. Someone else knows your story, and someone's kept your story secret from, from well, you. I mean, even way. recently, I was at a family uh, gathering, and somebody was talking to me and saying, who are you? And I said, oh, well, you know, that's my brother. And there was the, oh, well, I never knew John had a sister. And before the sentence was finished, his wife had turned on her heel and said, well, Kate's not his real sister. She was adopted. And you think, oh, for, and they have to adopt children themselves, you know, and you think, oh, you know, okay. But then what happens is that that's the, then, that then becomes the subject of the conversation. So it's then all about me. And so that interaction of finding out about other people and wanting to know their story, it always gets cut off because there's a, oh, have you ever met your birth parents? How long have you known? Have you known all your life? Uh, and it's that, I think, that was the difficulty, because it's like a fence that springs up around you. And you found um, out at around 11, didn't you? In, your, in the book it says that you, f you found out that you were adopted. No, um, no I'd always oh. known, um, but it, I wasn't really it's, sure what it meant. That's what I mean. Um, I, th I think what it meant was that... I thought what it meant was that the parents went to church and there were a lot of babies in cots, and then they chose one and had it baptised, and that was what adoption was. And that all the other babies came from under a gooseberry bush, or the store brought them, or, or wherever they came from. Uh, so I knew you arrived differently. Uh, but it was when I was 11 that I plucked up the courage to say, who were my... Uh, I didn't even know what to call them. I, I, I don't like the word birth parent. I find it a horrible euphemism. If a lamb was separated from a ewe, <laughs> you don't... You know, if, if the ewe takes it back, you don't then say, oh, it's been reunited with its birth mother. Um, it's its mother. And I think you use the word mother in your book and mum. And, and I think of that, you know, my mum is my mum and my mother. Mother was always a word that I found very daunting and it doesn't really mean anything to me, but it was a sort of formal and slightly distant um, construct. Uh, but no, when I was 11, I said, who was my mother? And it was terrible. It was as though, you know, I remember dad sort of going like this and mum sort of turning away and, you know, oh, we're going to tell her. And it was, it was like being in an episode of the original Poldock. It was all... <laughs> <laughs> it was all very heightened and very dramatic. Um, and here was this story that, uh, that my mother had uh, become pregnant while she was engaged to be married to somebody else. And, and so actually, that, her, her husband could have been my father, but I think she didn't know who my father was. And so the condition of that marriage going forward was that I went. And, um, and I remember saying, does that mean that I'm a bastard? Because I'd heard the word at school. And 
they sort of said, oh, well, they don't call, you know, no, the right word is illegitimate, and um, I nearly got smacked by mum for swearing, you know. Um, <laughs> but you're not anymore because, because we've adopted you. And it was, it was so heightened and so overblown that um, I didn't dare approach the subject ever again after that night. Um, and even now, mum's very, I mean, she's read the book, but she's sort of, sort of, um, she's not going to talk about that part of it, you know. How did she feel like being? How does she feel about being a character in a book? In your book? Uh, well, about halfway through the book, Mum had the most massive heart attack, and uh, she was without oxygen for six minutes, which has left her with a very specific form of dementia, which is vascular dementia, but it's really brain damage, um, and so she has a very short-term memory. So it was very hard to eat, to even remember. I mean, she knows about the book, but it's sort of she sort of pasted it into. Um, all our lives, so it's there next to her in her room, she's, she now lives in, in a care home, uh, and so she's just very happy about the whole thing, she, she only sees the good and she, she tends to forget everything that's painful and remember only the happy things, which is a marvellous state to be in, you know. It's <laughs> and it's, it's, it's extraordinary to me because quite early on in the book, perhaps you'd like to read a little bit of the book just to give people a Well, I could do. Um, it started off that I had this idea based on a Scottish novel, a novel by a man called Neil M. Gunn, uh, who wrote a book called The Well at the World's End um, about an academic of a certain age, that age being the end of youth, salt and pepper hair, um, who, driven by this sense of there being something else beyond the life that he was living now, something just out of reach uh, that he couldn't put his finger on, and he couldn't quantify it in any better terms than The Well at the World's End, uh, which was a, a Celtic, uh, Gaelic um, myth of the well of, of knowledge, really. It, it was surrounded by nine hazel trees, salmon swam in it, and one day um, a goddess approached it to find out how she might hide her illegitimate child from her husband, who was the well keeper. And the well, outraged at being asked such a profane question, rose up, um, drowned her, um, giving her name, Boand, to the River Boyne uh, in Ireland. And... Um, washing all the salmon that lived in the well that contained all the knowledge of the world out to sea. And they've been spending the whole of the rest of eternity trying to swim back upstream. Uh, so inspired by this book, which I lost and then found another book called The Highland River, Evie and I, my daughter there, decided to follow this river, the Dunbeath Water in Scotland, from the sea to its source. But mostly we didn't do it. I, I don't think we get there until about, about here. Um, and the first two-thirds of the book are, are me failing to achieve that. And one of our earliest attempts was in Wales, where we followed a tiny little stream, um, St. Mary's Well. And actually, we're in the wrong place when, when I'm, I'm reading this. We're not at St. Mary's Well. Um, we think we're at St. Mary's Well. Uh, and it's a tiny walk back to the source of that watercourse. And I'll read that when I can find it. Local legend has it but if you fill your mouth with the water of St. Mary's Well, climb back up the cliff and run three times around the ruins of St. Mary's Church and can do this without swallowing a drop, then your dreams, your wishes, will come true. We looked down at the pool. I hadn't told Evie about the wish. The skeleton of a seagull, the odd feather clinging to its fanned and broken wing, pointed to the well. Then I miss a bit out. My own eyes were becoming accustomed to the milky half-light in the narrow space between the pulsing ceiling of mist. 
We were in a natural chapel whose walls of black stone rose sheer behind the pool. I made out what at first appeared to be a skull, but in its perfect roundness turned out to be a fishing float, one of the small boys used to mark the lobster pots. There were bits of bone and driftwood, a plastic gallon container and a nylon orange net, all wedged deeply between tall splinters of wet rock. A rope of water with fans of gathered rainbows spilt down into the pool. Sheep droppings were visible on the ledge above our heads over which the spring water splashed. The dark turds kept moist upon cushions of bright green moss and interspersed with tufts of wool. I had no desire to hold this water in my mouth or anywhere else, my anxiety over hygiene interfering significantly with my capacity for wonder. I glanced round us. I felt that this couldn't be the right well. We made our way out of the channel on stepping stones while seawater funneled beneath us. The waves hissed and foamed like the froth that slips over the rim of a beer glass. It was a cushioned world, opaque as cataracts, and the mist, when we reached it, was as dense as before. We pulled ourselves up the rocks towards the path. I followed Evie, remaining behind her in case she slipped. I pointed out handholds to her across the red and yellow stone and helped her to place her feet in footholds until I heard the crunch of little stones beneath her shoes and knew she had regained the path. I heard a sibilant trickle, a mischievous chatter as the stream spattered over gravel, and the white cloud once again pressed around us. The only colour was in the bright moss, visible once more at our feet. Evie was delighted as the stream became apparent, and then dumbfounded as it disappeared again. I pointed out to her the path made plain by thick vegetation of watercress, thistles, spiky marsh grass and sphagnum moss that indicated the water's journey. She listened. The mist was thicker and whiter now. The silence seemed to stop up our mouths. And then a sound, quiet as an indrawn breath. The water. She didn't want to talk. She was intent, like a spaniel following a scent. And then she saw it. A round pool, a bowl of clear water as wide as her arm's length, as deep as her knees. At first it appeared still and we saw fine sandy gravel on the bottom, the occasional green weed. Tightly coiled water snails, small as seeds, bright as jewels, encrusted the straight walls and heaped against the stems of weeds. Somewhere below the surface, where the spring fed the well, these images bent, the refraction attesting to the pulsed movement. Around the pool were signs of pilgrimage. Flat stones marked its edge, and at one point they were drawn into a lip, the runoff that formed the stream. The grass around the well was flattened, muddied by many feet, and the stones had been grouted in to keep them stable. On either side were long sticks where someone had lifted green algae from the surface, and this was now browning in the air. Evie noticed and peered for more sea-green discs. She tried to pull a young fern to act as a scoop, but the fronds came off in her hand, leaving the stem bent but still attached. Will you help me, Mummy? There was a bluff, hardly that, a winged mound behind the water where we counted pink saxifrage, primroses no longer flowering, a yellow flower, tormentil, and purple foxgloves, whose tall rods screened the well. Beyond the bluff, the heather and gorse and new ferns led back towards the dry stone wall where we'd begun our journey. I told Evie about the legend, the running round the church, the wishes. A veil seemed to pass across her eyes. The white mist pressed closely all around us, and I saw that she had no need for the miracle. All she wanted, she had before her. She took her water bottle, emptied it out, and then filled it from the silent well. She studied the contents. 
held them up and asked me to reaffix the lid. Then, suddenly a child again, she put out her hand for me to hold, and we left. I no longer knew what to, ask, to wish for. Health and happiness, I think. Nothing more. You really capture in that extract, quite apart from anything else, the, the character of your, your, your child, Evie, who's, who's actually quite, quite grown up now. Yes, I forgot to mention she was eight at the time. Yeah, she's she's actually been terribly grown up and, now, she's 16. Yes, or nine, and, and there's something kind of fascinating for, for, for me about, about meeting Evie now, because you know, you're, you're, you're reading The Fish Ladder and you have this little eight-year-old, and you actually get to know her very well as a character, and then you suddenly meet this very sophisticated, cool and elegant <laughs> <laughs> young woman. So that, that, and, and in this, that short space of time, it seems, in the time that it's taken to, to, for those experiences, for those wonderful journeys to happen, um, um, you, you, your girl's grown. And isn't that an interesting thing that with memoir, that it, it, it tells the time it, and it pinpoints a particular time. And now you have, um, along with photographs, and Evie will have um, when she gets around to reading the book in her later mm -hmm. years or whenever, she will have a different kind of. Um, memory, quite a specific, detailed memory of, of specific trips and the wonder of discovering things. Well, it's, it's interesting that you say photographs because the time that I, that summer that I'm describing, uh, was when the digital camera had just about come into its own and you, could, you couldn't really get 35mm film anymore. And I couldn't hack the digital camera. I mean, if you drop it, it doesn't work. And if you try and take a picture, whatever it is that you're taking a picture of has just walked out of the frame. Mm -hmm. And I really struggled. Um, that summer with, with cameras. And I think Rupert had given me one, my husband had given me one which I broke, dropped it in a rock pool. And so I started writing because I wanted to capture the summer. So this book, in the first instance, it wasn't a memoir and it wasn't me trying to come to terms with something or, or explore something. It, I'd never written before. It was just an account of the summer because I could tell that it was special. You know, she was at that certain age where um, she was just beginning to take off. Uh, she ran down the beach by herself for the first time ever. I dropped her off at uh, our, the beach near our home has got a place where you can come down by car and then about a mile further down the beach there's a pub which you can also get to by car. So I dropped Evie off at the first place called the Bulch, which means the pass, and said, you walk along the beach and I'm going to park the car and go to the rock pools and don't leave the rock pools. And then I'd driven and come down and found her. My heart was in my mouth because, you know, you think you've left a child on a beach alone, age nine. But I thought this is the age where you are beginning to be independent. She wanted to do it. She wanted to walk on her own. And, um, and it was that summer. And so it, it was special. So that was why I started writing. It was so that I could give it to her at some point in the future, like a scrapbook. Yes, like, like um, something, this is what you were like. Mm, you know. Because because quite apart from anything else in the book, and the book does many things at once, because you, you interweave mythology, Celtic mythology, along with memoir-type writing, along with a kind of a, a quest, if you like, a quest to, to find out um, um, your own origins, along with a quest to find the centre, to find this mysterious yes, beginning. Yes, this, this well at the world's end that we don't really know what that is. But, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, well, the, the Celtic mythology, I, I do... Um, I knew that the book had, if you like, a spiritual dimension, or rather, e even using that word... Um, Fastens you down too it, much. It does. Um, it, it was about an, an otherness, a sense of, of something else. And I didn't want to refer to, if you like, the big three world religions. I didn't want to 
um, make parallels with... I have to in a way, because a lot of the Celtic myths are about early Christian saints, because as you know, around here in Cornwall, St. Adillian's Church, uh, those early Celtic saints became figures of mythology, and they often grew out of um, Celtic figures of mythology. Uh, and so the holes in my own life, I cut and pasted with what I felt were parallel stories from the Celtic myths, because the only thing I could ever tell by looking in the mirror was that I was, you know, sort of green-eyed and pointy chin and big eyes, and I was probably uh, what we call a Celt, whatever that is. Um, um, but that, that fascinates me too, because it really goes back to um, what we were saying in the beginning, that without a story, you make stories, and which stories we attach ourselves to generally in life, and which stories that we identify with, are always, it's always a fascinating thing, from being little kids and told fairy stories, um, to, to hearing um, lullabies, to hearing um, children in nursery rhymes, there will be different stories, rhymes, nursery rhymes, Celtic myths, whatever, that, that, we, that we somehow attach ourselves to, and they, they double with us, the stories that we love and the music that we love doubles with us um, on, on the course of the flow of our lives, and I find that a really interesting thing, because you really do examine that in, in depth, and was there, was there any story that illuminated or opened itself out for you as you were doing that, even more than you, than you had initially known? Um. Well, I think what became the title, The Fish Ladder, The Fish Ladder refers to the fish ladder at Pitlochry in Scotland, um, which is one of a series of hydroelectric dams that were built to illuminate the highlands after the Second World War. And my, my dad, my adopted father, was an engineer, a mechanical engineer, and he would have loved The Fish Ladder as, as a, as a man-made solution to a man-made problem in that the salmon are prevented from swimming upstream by an obstacle created by people and we people created uh, a solution to that problem by building the fish ladder, which is a terrifying structure, uh, certainly when it's in the river's in spate and the water is crashing down through it and you think, how can these salmon get up this ladder? And, but if, you, if they don't attempt the ladder, then they'll die. Uh, you know, they, just, they won't reach their spawning grounds and that'll be it. So the story that, that kept rising was this story of the salmon of knowledge uh, that appears in Ireland, it appears in Scotland, it appears in Wales. There are versions of it all over the place. And I noticed that most of the bits of mythology, quite coincidentally, that I was choosing were to do with this story, uh, which is this fish that uh, if you eat the flesh of it, you will have all the knowledge of the world. And various people in various different versions of the story are trying to uh, get hold of it. The most famous one is the Irish story of the hero Finn McCool, who was just a young boy walking in the woods and he came across a druid who was, who'd caught one of these fish. He'd managed after seven years to catch a salmon uh, and he was sort of turning it on a spit and he left this young boy, Finn, as he was called then, uh, to, to look at this, to oversee the cooking of the fish and said, whatever you do, don't eat the fish. I'm going off to do something else, collect some firewood or whatever druids do. Uh, and when he, while he was away, uh, three drops of hot fat spat from the salmon's crispy burning skin onto Finn's thumb. And he then put it in his mouth and immediately became Finn McCool and uh, had all the knowledge of the, the world. And uh, when, the, when the druid came back, he could tell there was something different about the boy. He'd suddenly got an alacrity to him that wasn't there before. And he said, did you eat of the fish? And uh, Finn said, well, no, I didn't. But, um, you know, it, it burnt my thumb and, and I put it in my mouth and so I did taste the fat. And, and the druid said, well, in that case, you know, the fish is yours. Here, have it. 
and uh, from then on, whenever he needed knowledge, he would suck his thumb and uh, the answer would come to him. Uh, but there are lots of versions of this story, and I kept stumbling across them, and I think that's how the salmon of knowledge, uh, the fish ladder, came to... Uh, and it's quite an extraordinary thing, because I've, I've been and seen that, that fish ladder that you're talking about in Pilotki, and I remember going there as a child, we, we used to get taken there, and my brother, who's been a fisherman ever since, is completely and utterly obsessed with... With, with, with fish and their movement and... and um, well, it and is sort of mythological in it. Um, it seems enormous. It looks like what I imagine Knossos to look like. It's, it's got this great wall and then uh, this sort of t streaming torrent down the side of it and then behind it, this huge Loch Fascalia, which is this man-made dammed-up loch. Uh, yes, and if you go at the right time, there you see them, like, like some kind of wondrous, mythical miracle, these salmon leaping and leaping and leaping, and, and you have this, this, it's a sense that you get of pure joy and wonder mm -hmm. at the strangeness of things and at the way that stories are made. And you and write about the, the natural world um, with, with, with such a vivid sense of, of it, with a real pleasure in, in in the mystery, really, of things. And I was interested, you mentioned the word coincidence there, because through the book, there's a theme, really, of coincidences, of things coming together um, that, that are not meant, but are also are meant, as mm. if there is such a thing as coincidence, and there's no such thing as coincidence, simultaneously, as if both these statements are true. Well, yeah, there are an unlikely number of coincidences, but then there are in life. And so when I realized that this piece of writing was becoming something, I had to think, well, what was it? Generically, what's it going to be? And I thought, well, it can't be fiction because it's got far too many coincidences in it and no one will believe it. Um, and so therefore it has to be a piece of life writing. Um, I, what I was interested in, in um, just throwing back at you there, was you mentioned the natural world and writing about place. And, and, I, and I think it's partly because I was an adoptee that I always felt very much at home with the land around me. Uh, when I wasn't always sure of the relationships between human beings and who or where I might fit in, I felt very much uh, a sense of place. And I, I sense that you have that in your own writing. In you know, you're a Glaswegian, and you're a mm. uh, I don't know if, if that's something that you feel or notice or have noticed in your own work. That, uh, um, a sense of a, a sense of place. Yeah, yeah no, sense I think of I think um, yes. When I, when I was writing Red Dust Road, it came to to be about places in a, in mm. a funny way, which I hadn't set out to do. But mm. it, I, I suddenly realised that each each part of the book um, was in a different place, whether that be Aberdeen mm. or Abuja, or, and that when I was in the northeast in the highlands of Scotland, I felt a sense of affinity with the landscape. It was the same affinity that I felt in the east of Nigeria. And um, I find it a fascinating thing to think that, we, that there are landscapes that we have an affinity with. Sometimes we, we can't actually explain it or understand it ourselves. And it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily created by having some link biologically to a landscape. It can be connected to something, something else that's, that's uh, perhaps deeper and more, more mysterious than that. But it, it, it is interesting which landscapes chime with us and which, which places absolutely take our breath away. I, I mean, I love Cornwall, for instance, and every time I'm in Cornwall, any part of it, I feel a, a great sort of uplifting uh, feeling because it's just so dynamic and just so beautiful um, here. Um, but, but there's also something about it that sort of uh, opens, opens um, you to it, opens your heart to it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I think it's interesting. And then there are landscapes that feel closed and secretive um, that can be um, appealing. And then there's landscapes that, that are just just stretch 
and turn. And I remember setting my feet on, the, on, the, on this red path in the east of Nigeria, and it felt as if my footsteps were already there, my waiting footsteps. All I had to do was walk into them, and in a sense, it was a, a strange kind of eerie feeling. So, yes, I think that's... I yeah, think that's it is. It. Because, I mean, the, the part of Wales that I ended up in, which I had no family connection with at all, I've got this cottage in the Lillian Peninsula, and, uh, and much later on in the book, I, uh, I meet my... Well, he may be my full brother, or he may be my half-brother. We don't really know. Uh, and he said to me, why did you buy this cottage? Why, why here? And I said, well, and it was completely arbitrary. I had no good reason. I'd been to visit my brother when he was on holiday. And I thought, oh, this is great. And the house prices were affordable. And when I bought, when we bought this cottage, I didn't even know where the nearest town was. I had no idea really where I was. I'd just flown in and dropped. And he said, well, that's interesting because all of my father's family come from that coast. And uh, so I, I'm surrounded by, strangely, I'm surrounded by kinsmen <laughs> who I've never met and don't know I exist. Uh, but that's where I've sort of washed up without... Um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really interested as well in your, in your book in, in tone, because it seems to me that the key to writing memoir is tone, well, with three Ts, tone, tense and time. But tone is really important because um, you can't really write a book that's self-pitying or bitter or angry because it sort of... Le leaves the reader reader out. And there are very shocking things that happen in the course of, of the fish ladder, the, the letter um, from your birth mother, the couple of letters from your birth mother and her response to, to you. And, and the way that you the way that you tell us about that particular mm -hmm. part is, is almost as if you've had to take a step back and let the reader do the feeling for you. Well, interestingly, it's interesting that you say that because I'd, I'd written about five drafts of the book before I discovered that I even knew that I was going to find uh, my birth mother. And it was a terribly painful process. It, it was, uh, I mean, I'd had cancer, and cancer was a walk in the park by comparison with the relationship with this lady. I could read the letter. Do you want yeah, me to read one of the letters if I can if find can, it? If you can, um, it. If I can find it quickly. Whoever finds it first, yes, shout let's go. out. Let's go, let's go. Yeah, go, on. Oh, go, on, go on, let's go. Race is on. Um, right over here. Oh, I might have got it. No, oh, I've got it. I think. Here we are. Um, so so I'd, I'd written a letter uh, via a... Um, because I'd been diagnosed with cancer, um, and the cancer may have been hereditary. My doctors wanted a full medical family history, and it was for this reason that I, I tried to find my mother, um, which wasn't too difficult to do, but um, this is the letter that she wrote back. This is the letter I thought she was going to write. Um, I love you. There's not been one day when I have not thought of you. I've been searching for you from the moment we were separated. The fantasy evaporated even before Ariel started to read to me. Her tone of voice had given it away. Ariel read words to the effect of, I have been deeply shocked to receive this correspondence. I do not wish to hear anything else about this matter. Do not pass any information about me to your client. I am sorry she wants to know her family, but I grew up without knowing my own father and I am certain your client can survive without knowing her ancestry. This really is the most horrible thing that has ever happened to me, and I trust I will hear nothing more on this subject. All I will say is I was in Australia at the time, trying to avoid difficulties of my own. Yours sincerely, and her name. 
Let us call her for the sake of this history, Mrs. Thomas. This letter is an approximation because the copyright belongs to Mrs. Thomas. The piece of paper on which it was written is the property of Ariel because it was to her that the letter was addressed. The irony of not owning this communication and of not being able to accurately share the story of my life in order to protect the privacy of my birth mother is not lost on me. Um, so th that happened uh, in sort of real time and it was extraordinarily painful. Uh, and I had to sort of hold it. Often at these sorts of events, people will ask me, was it cathartic? Did you find writing this book cathartic? And no, it was horrific. It was the absolute opposite of catharsis. I had to sort of hold her kind of over there and sort of look just out of the corner of my eye and then just sort of try and write. Um, and I'd write for sort of 15 minutes and then go and throw up. I mean, it was, it was extraordinarily difficult to write this section of the book without just sort of lying on the floor and bawling my head off and sort of saying, <laughs> I feel really sorry for myself. Um, because, as you say, that doesn't leave the reader... It, it pushes the reader away. I think any kind of extreme emotion uh, pu pushes uh, people away. Uh, and so I just tried to present it in as sort of skeletal and airy a manner as I could and then just leave it hanging... Uh, for people to sort of people to yes to leave your make what they like of it get really. your readers onto the floor yes oh, well <laughs> <laughs> have them cleaned about the place <laughs> but there there is something about the juxtaposition of these two letters the one where you imagine what she might have uh, written and the one where she actually wrote um, this is the worst thing that's happened to me the, the juxtaposition of these two is the, is the absolutely awful thing and somewhere in between these two extremes of these two letters the imaginary fantasy letter and the actual letter lies the reader as well because yeah. because we try and negotiate as readers I think that's what we do when we read a book we try and negotiate the gaps and the voids and the losses in between but we can only negotiate those if we're given the gap to in the first place and so I think that's very um, brilliantly done and, and handled and it must have been I can it imagine so difficult you. to do. Can I have the little write that down? Yeah. Thank, no, thank, no, thank you. Thank you. We, uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah, Jackie Gay says. <laughs> no, because it must have been so very difficult um, to do because you feel uh, a sense of outrage and anger um, on your behalf when you come when you come to that that bit because you I mean you you think couldn't. Couldn't she have managed to give just a little bit more? Well, you know, Not I necessarily to meet, but just I a little bit thinking, more. I remember thinking, you know, you've had, I think I was about in my sort of mid to late 40s when I got that letter. And I, did, I remember thinking, you know, you have had decades to think about. And it's not as if it's a phone call or it's a conversation. You've actually written it down. You could have rewritten it. You could have softened it. Uh, because she wrote another letter in which she, she described me as it. You know, I never looked at it. They told me later it was a girl. And... And I thought, gosh, you know, you, you're clearly an intelligent woman who can string a sentence. Um, but my goodness, what a punch, you know. She, she, uh... Yeah, it's a, a really big, big punch. And then you, you describe in the book your, your father, who you aren't, aren't able to find, and you don't know the name, and she wasn't able to help you with that as a, as a hyphen. And it's really um, very powerful to have punctuation mark because it's a hyphen in the birth certificate um, to, to, to take the place a piece of punctuation to take well, it's the place of when you said that because when the manuscript was edited the the um the line editor because they go through absolutely everything picked up on this and said hyphen um you mean dash uh because a hyphen is only mm. this big and I wrote back and said, no, it was a hyphen. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a tiny mark on my birth certificate. Um, 
your dad didn't even your get your father's name, dash, you know, mm. uh, hyphen. I think dash was too, too, would have been too big a word for it. <laughs> but in that, in that hyphen, you, you, have, you, have you managed to kind of create a, 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 an image or an invention of, of him? Well, you don't get a real sense of him. The thing is, I have no idea because I don't actually know which of the two candidates. Uh, I mean, there was the man that she had the one night stand with, according to her, during her um, engagement. And then there's the man who she subsequently married. Now, she was always convinced that um, the man she met in Australia was my father. But actually, Evie, my daughter, is the absolute image of my very Welsh half-brother or full brother, whatever he is. And so, and he said, well, I look like my dad. And I thought, well, if you look like your dad and she looks like you, then that rather implies that, uh, you know, there's a Welsh route rather than an Irish route or Australian route to uh, this story. Um, but no, I found that I find hard because I think if I had a child out there in the world, I would want to know that that child existed. And I felt that her... Um, I didn't feel that she had the right to... It's not just me who is, is being held at arm's length. It, it's him. Um, you know, I would have, he will be a very old man now even if he's still alive. And, I, and also it's your, it's, your, it's your child's knowledge of... Yes, of, absolutely. ...of, of her. Um, well, Evie wants us to do the uh, Ancestry.com thing where you spit in a pot or whatever it is, <laughs> that the cheat swab, so she can trace her ancestry back to whichever is the correct continent. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's interesting, that thing, when you are adopted and then you have a child, you, you then have to think... Because I remember when I was a, a, a kid growing up, my mum sort of brought me up to have a great deal of sympathy mm. for my birth mother. So she'd say to me, you know, when I was eight, somewhere there's a woman there, out there thinking that child I had will be eight today, nine today. And, yeah. and I used to sort of imagine this, uh, this woman. Well, that as did my mum, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so you have this kind of friendly other um, presence partly created, and then when, if, if it's not the, the same as, as what you've imagined, I think that could therein can be the shock as well, because it's a shock of the imagination, first and foremost. Yes, of course you met your mother, didn't you, your mm -hmm. birth mother, and so uh, you, you had a concrete realisation of, uh, for what for me it still remains a kind of fictional, mm -hmm. almost, almost a fictional being in, in many ways. Um, I don't know if that made it easier or less for you. I know I'm throwing the question right back at you, but, <laughs> it's, uh, but I'm intrigued because you, you've had the experience and I haven't in a way of, uh, mm -hmm. of what is that like to set eyes on someone who... Who you've had an image of? It is a strange thing. I find it strange meeting both my mother and my father because they were they were strangers, complete strangers, but they were also familiars. And um, you know, you, you literally have relative strangers, mm. and there are parts that you can see in um, um, in them, and parts that you feel completely um, distant from. Them. And and that's a, it is a, it is a kind of eerie and unsettling feeling mm. because it's almost like too much intimacy, the idea yes, that you share yes. something of somebody and then and then don't. There's something I think very, very odd about it. Um, but at the same time, um, it's, it's part of a, of a journey and your imagination, as your imagination has done in the fish ladder, meets people first yes. and works away around it and the imagination not, not I, I don't like the word catharsis either because mm -hmm. it makes some things too simple it's almost like you get it out and then you're fine and that's not really what the writing process is like but the imagination does um, grapple and contend with 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 absences and, and make them into presences the kind of presences that we have made in our lives out of absence actually do you mind if I read this little no, piece where I set eyes on my um, brother 
Uh, again, I wasn't planning on reading this. It's the way the conversation's gone, so we'll have to see if I can find it. Uh, when I first set eyes on my brother, who, after my birth mother had decided that she didn't want anything to do with me, um, I waited three months, and I, I, I promised her, I said, if you meet me, I give you my word, I'll never tell a living soul about this. Uh, but she wouldn't, and I knew that I had other siblings. And I thought, well, you know, you've had a really good crack at this, really, and, I, and I've done everything I can to behave in a sort of ordinarily decent manner. And I knew that I had siblings who wouldn't have ever known about me had she met me, because I'd given her my word, I wouldn't tell anyone. And then I thought, well, you know, they're, they're grown up. Um, and I tried to find them. Now, it was very difficult, because in Wales, there aren't that many names. Um, and so I knew my two brothers' names, but in, what, in, the, in the electoral district in which they'd been born, uh, there were 125 men with one name and 96 with the other. I thought, well, I can't write to them all, because the thing about Wales is, as soon as a piece of information lands, it's like a cobweb. Mm. And, you know, there's this vibration that goes out into the community, and, and everyone would know. And so I decided to just Google him. And I put the name in Google, and uh, then... I can't find the piece. Uh, th this name turned up. My husband had been looking up something to do with rugby, and that, this one word was in the search engine. So I put the name... my brother. Well, that was, an brother's brother's well, that was amazing. bizarre. Because yeah, it, it, it was a trail history that had been left yes. behind. Yes, I had fully deleted to, yeah, the previous delete. history. Yeah, so I think that's really, really extraordinary. So that, that led you to... That's quite near the end of the book, that part. It is. I love the way you're giving me a hint here. Sorry, sorry. Um, it's clear, I've read it. Oh, that's Get for on sure. with it. Um, it's, uh, oh, here we are. Uh, so I put in his name, the village he grew up in, and then suddenly this name appeared, and it just said these two brothers, uh, during the 1990s, had played for the local team. And uh, so, like, sort of. Then we went to Google Images, and about 200 rugby players called Robert Thomas um, appeared. And Evie was standing behind me, and she she just said, "Well, that's him there." And we clicked on the image, and, and he was the captain of a local team. Um, it's extraordinary, really it's thrilling, really unlikely. And uh, and so that that strange buzz that you're talking about of seeing someone who has got your blood in their veins. Uh, he was still playing for a Welsh rugby union club. I clicked on the image, brought up the website, studied the upcoming fixtures. There was an away match the following evening. Evie and I packed our overnight bags, got into the car and drove. We got to the ground early. There was hardly anyone there. A young man came over and tapped on the window of the car. I glanced over at Evie. She was white with apprehension. Is it okay to park here? I asked. We've come for the rugby. <laughs> over there, he said, and he pointed. I'd driven into the car park of a building supplier next to the ground, and the man wanted to lock the gate. The floodlights had still not been turned on. This is awful, said Evie. I think I'm going to be sick. I looked at her, chastened. I hadn't stopped to think how she might be feeling, although I couldn't have imagined it if I tried. There was no emotional signpost by which we might orientate ourselves, although that wasn't an excuse. I'd once again walked off the edge of a map to a place that was completely unknown. I couldn't articulate my feelings. I had little hope of comprehending hers. I parked carefully close to the exit with the car facing towards the road. We haven't got the right clothes, Evie said. Sorry? Look at us. Evie was wearing jeans and a brown leather jacket. I was wearing a green plaid duster coat cut on the bias. It was three months since I'd shaved my head. We didn't look as though we were going to a rugby match. <laughs> we look all right. No one's going to be interested in what we're wearing. 
Would you like to go back home? Yes, she said, and my heart folded like a shot bird. No, I want to stay. I held out my hand, avoiding her gaze. Do you want to wait in the car? I'm coming with you, she said. We squeezed each other's fingers tightly. We took up a position in the grandstand. There were 17 people, including us. One young man opened a sports holder and removed a club flag, and then another Welsh flag, and secured them to the back wall of the stand. A young lad with a 1950s cut to his bright red hair ducked in front of us. The man with the flags took out a radio and began to tune it. A farmer type with flannel trousers tapped a black-thorn walking stick as though searching for a hidden panel. They all seemed to know one another. I hoped they would assume we were supporting the visiting team. <laughs> there was a training session in progress for the second team. At the edge of the floodlighting beyond the boundary fence, a horse ran up and down, dipping its head, and then the players came out. I'd read the match reports for the previous games, and Robert usually wore six or seven. I looked for the numbers. Two men, dark-haired, in their twenties. He isn't here. That's him, Evie pointed. Number eight. It was, he was at the other side of the pitch, overexposed in the milky lights, the turf glowing emerald beneath his feet. His hair was longer than in the picture, and he looked stronger than I'd imagined. He talked a lot. Ah, oh, ref! If I hear one more word from you, Tomo, it's a yellow card. He's exactly like you, Evie said and giggled. <laughs> <laughs> Only a boy. After that came a tackle which threw him onto his shoulder. He bounced up, tweaked his sleeve and ran on. But Evie, they're calling him Tomo. It's short for Thomas. There's probably another Robert. I was astonished and delighted by her acumen and detective skills. Half time came. That's great. <laughs> that's a, I think that's a brilliant point to open things out to the audience and to see if anyone has got any questions. The roving mic is going round with Phil. As usual, wait till I get to you, if you, if you would. If there's anybody. There's one there, the green and, green and white rugby shirt. <laughs> Celtic. <laughs> That's not rugby. Hi. Have you grown your relationship with your brother? Has, it, has your relationship with your brother grown since then and continued? Uh, yes, it has. I mean, it started off uh, really very well. And we saw each other quite often. Uh, he's now actually not living in the United Kingdom anymore. Um, but we write... I mean, he's a writer too. He wrote a book. I edited it. You know, it, it's quite strange. It's... Uh, um, but there's an awkwardness. I mean, there's, there's a. I think he, for him, it, he he uh, he hasn't told our other siblings because he said they're like that with mum. You know, he's the youngest of all of them, and so there's a sort of we get on very very well, but in a, in a quite formal way. We sort of dance around one another. So. Um, it's. I mean, it's difficult if you have a parent who's it's his mum. You know, who's uh, so, so we get we get on very well, but we've had to sort of build a sort of special relationship. That I mean, it's good that we can work with one another from the point of view of me giving him notes and things like that, because it gives you a space in which you can uh, be together without it being the familial space that, that doesn't exist. Um, but we'll, yeah, I think it's going to be a long, slow burn, really. Uh. Thank you. Swan, the right at the back there. Um, I'm just wondering about any sort of 
literary influences on you. Um, I'm thinking particularly about the way of writing about the land and the landscape. I haven't read your book, but I've bought it today and I'm looking forward to reading it. But the bits that you've read, particularly the bit where you were talking about the well, St. Mary's Well, was it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I'm just thinking about even 19th century writers like Richard Jeffries, you know, the uh, 19th century sort of naturalist stroke writer. Are, are there any particular ones who stand out? Um, I think they're more contemporary than that. I think a book that had an enormous influence on me was The Snow Leopard by Peter Matheson, uh, which, uh, I mean, Peter Matheson was a novelist, but he wrote this one um, big work of biography where he went off to Tibet. He sort of attached himself to a... Um, an expedition that was going to search for the very elusive snow leopard, which now you can just look at on Google Images. But at, at the time, it was a bit like the Yeti. No one was even sure if it still existed. It had almost become, it had been real, but it had almost become a mythological beast. And he goes off on this travelogue. And you realize, actually, by sort of looking between the lines, that uh, his wife, who he really didn't get on that well with, who he was going to divorce, had then announced that she had cancer, so he didn't divorce her, and he stayed with her until she died. And then I think they had four children, um, the youngest of which was only eight, and he just decided to go on this expedition and left them all. And every so often he'll say, oh, I must try and get back in time for Halloween because I promised the youngest that I'd be back. And then he sort of realises it's now December. And... Um, what I realised was that if you use travelogue, uh, you can approach really quite difficult subjects, but in a kind of tangential way, because in travel writing, you're not obliged... There's almost a, an unwritten um, code of... Uh, a bit like birds, uh, books about bird-watching, where you don't actually tell people where the bird is. Um, and so you're allowed, you, built into it is a kind of obfuscation and, and a respect for your fellow traveller whereby you don't invade their privacy. And I think that um, book more than any other uh, influenced the way in which I went about this. Although actually I did just start as a travelogue. And so I think Robert McFarlane would be um, certainly an influence, if for no other reason that when I read The Wild Places, I hadn't realised that there were other people in the world who slept outside without a tent um, in a bivy bag and that I wasn't alone. Uh, and so I became aware of a sort of, uh, but a, a sort of group of writers around me who uh, were doing this sort of thing. But as soon as I realised that, I didn't actually read any of them because I didn't want to be influenced. I actually read poetry. Because um, a lot of influence of poets, there's Alice Oswald, there's R.S. Thomas in the, in the book, and you quote from them, which is a, a lovely thing to come across, to come across Alice Oswald. Yes, I, uh, I, well, Alice Oswald wrote this wonderful, um, I mean, she writes about rivers. She wrote Dart, Dart and yeah. she wrote uh, a book called, um, I think it's called A Night Sleepwalk on, a night walk on the River Severn, mm -hmm. and uh, my birth mother's home is actually... She the voices of all the people along the river. She did. She sort of takes the voices of the, that she hears as she's travelling, she folds them into the narrative, and um, my birth mother lived very close to the source of the River Severn, so, of course, Alice Oswald was in my head all the time as I was getting close to this um, place in, in, in Wales, this sort of bog with springs sort of growing up in it. And I thought, well, here, this is where this enormous river starts. And actually, so do I. Because the, the, the language of rivers and the ways in which rivers um, 
have different currents going on simultaneously is, is probably a really good metaphor for this book, The Fish Ladder, because there are so many different currents going and coming against each other, and different styles. So you have a travelogue, and you have memoir, and you have a di different ways of writing. Well, if I had it with story. me now, I'd read you something from um, from Dart, because she, she does, Alice Oswald does have this way of, she'll have the voices of the men in the kayak as they're walking along the shore, heard by the old god of the river as he lies on the bottom. Um, with the sort of water rushing over him and then you'll have a farmer as he's sort of driving his cows in and it's almost like a radio, it's like tuning a radio uh, moving the dial up and down and you just get these different voices and so yes I think that influenced me enormously was to try and fold in, fold in all these different um, what was happening around me and that voices of, of passers-by and birds and Oh, wonderful. I think we have time for one more question, maybe one more or two more. I've got one here and one there. Should we take them both at once? Yeah. Um, thank you. It's been absolutely um, fascinating to listen. Um, as I was listening to both of you, you've both um, related quite a lot to your affinity with the land, the coincidences, um, synchronicity. And I just wondered if you have any view on kind of Jung's idea of collective unconscious, because that's something for me, because sort of scientifically we are all part of what's gone before. And there was a lot of synchronicity in what you were saying with how, how I view the world as well. And I just wondered, A, if you have a view on that um, psychological aspect, and B, does it give you any comfort? Um, I think that's a fascinating question. Well, funnily enough, Jung, Jung I, does have... That, that idea of a collective unconscious is something that I very much believe in. And so, I mean, at one point, I was really quite sick when I was writing this book, and I remember saying to my husband, you must finish the book, uh, because I don't regard it as mine. I regard it as something that bubbled out of this collective unconsciousness. And so if I sort of died before I'd finished it, I was perfectly happy for another artist. Rupert to write it. Yeah, to finish it. And, you know, honestly, I mean, take over in the first person as Rupert. You don't be another voice that contributes to the narrative. Uh, but oddly, when we were driving towards my birth mother's house, Evie was asking me about Jungian psychoanalysis, of which I didn't know much about. And I was trying to explain this idea that Jung had of... Uh, there being archetypes, and that if you could find the archetype that, you're, that you related to, then you could unlock um, a great deal of knowledge about yourself. Yeah. And I said to Evie, you know, I can't think of a single mythological figure who gave birth to their child and then buried them and built a life without them as though they weren't there. And Evie, who at this time was about 13, looked at me and said, mine at all. <laughs> 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 and I was horrified because I'd thought that I was Theseus going down into the labyrinth with my sword to fight the beast in the labyrinth. And it had not occurred to me that from my mother's perspective, Pasiphae, who fell in love with this bull and gave birth to this sort of half-man, half-bull child that no one knew what to do with and they were all really embarrassed, so they got Daedalus to build a labyrinth and stuff it underground and they didn't know what to feed it, so they gave it the blood of Athenian youth. And there was Pasiphae sort of sitting in her castle, um, wishing that no one would listen to the grumbling that was coming from under the floor. And it had never once occurred to me that that was me, that, that I was the bull, I was the creature in the labyrinth. Uh, but for her, and so, so no, yeah, I found it really helpful. That, yeah. um, that, was, that was a brilliant, brilliant question. We have, there was one over here that we just have time for. I think one last one. Is that right? Do we have time for more than one last one? Yes, one more, yes. It's down here, this lady here. Oh, Sue. Hi. <laughs> uh, you 
made these journeys up the rivers, either following or during some quite traumatic times in your life. Having done those journeys, have you done any more journeys up rivers? Or has that, that need sort of now been dealt with? Um, that's a very interesting question. I do still do it because I think once started, it becomes extraordinarily, it becomes a, a habit. Uh, however, it is very difficult to do anywhere in England and Wales. Scotland has a right to roam, which is why I ended up in Scotland. Uh, if you try and follow any watercourse in England or Wales within 50 metres or 100 metres, you'll come across a fence or a field with a bull in it or someone's garden or a golf course. Uh, and so what stopped, slowed me down is, is distance from Scotland, I think. There is a, a river in the Clean Peninsula that I'm trying to, at the moment, patch together the permission from all the different farmers whose land that passes through for me to cross uh, their land. Because it's obviously not using... You have to go through the water because you can't, there are no gates because we don't have a right to roam. Um, but no, at the moment what I'm doing is walking along the coast. And so I think maybe... What, what it, it's not rivers that interest me in a way from the point of view of sea to source. I realised while I was doing it that what fascinates me is the difference of elements. So you go from water to the sort of what's underneath the surface uh, which you see in a riverbed uh, to the beach, the shore and then the land. And so it's that change of, and then air, you know, you've got over the top. So it's that, you, you've got three elements. Uh, it, it's that border. I realised it was the walking in borderlands, if you like, in a sort of metaphorical and physical space of transience that interested me more than actually going from the beginning to the end or the end to the beginning. It was, and of course, coast gives you absolutely... That's what we were doing this morning, in fact. We were, got lost a bit, I'm afraid, uh, walking to the... I was going to say the buttocks. They're not called the buttocks, are they? They're called the buttocks. The rums. The rums. The rums. The, rums. Yeah. The, rums. <laughs> the buttocks of the <laughs> Seems, um, that, that transition that, yeah. that, that you described. It's a very, very neat segue into, <laughs> into something. Yeah. Into, okay. into cake, I suspect, and tea. I was going to say, yes, I think that's a very, very good transition from, from, uh, from rumps. <laughs> from rumps to buttocks to cakes and rumps and tunnocks. Um, but but um, I think that, that was absolutely really fascinating and truly, truly wonderful to hear. And I would urge you to get the fish ladder. I think you'll, you'll find it completely compelling and fascinating. I want to take some of the journeys yourself. And you did it point out that you don't spoil the journeys for people, so there's so much mystery still in this yes, book. There's so many, this, yes, there's so much for us still to still to find out and discover. So, Catherine Arby, thank you very, very much. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.